0: Well hey, good morning. How are we today? Pretty good. How was everyone's Christmas? Was it good? Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Nice. Everyone get what they wanted off their Christmas list? Yes? No? I see some wives shaking their heads no. Husbands, you got to pay attention to that stuff. You got to pay attention. Uh, Some of you have that look on your face that like family just left town and that's the Christmas gift you've been wanting this whole time. I get it. I understand. I understand that. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm excited to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. If not, we've got some people coming down the aisles that would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. And once you've uh, got that, uh, go ahead and open to 1 Samuel chapter 13. That's what we're going to be today. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 19. And I'm excited about this story. It's a really cool story. It's it's exciting. It's encouraging uh, because it's about winning. And winning is fun, winning is awesome, winning is better than losing, typically. I like winning a lot. Um, we have a president who says he's going to win so much that it's gonna, we're going to be sick of how often he wins. There's a famous philosopher named T-Pain, and he said, all I do is win. It's, it's a thing. People love winning. Winning is, winning is fun. And the story is, is cool because it's about winning, but it's not just about winning. The this, this story is about when the underdog wins. And it's always cool to watch the, the, the underdog win. I think there's something about that, that that's, that's enticing and, and exciting. And if I'm watching TV and a, there's like a game on and I don't have any rooting interest in the game, I typically cheer for the, for the underdog. I, I like watching a good March Madness upset. And, and even though I'm a Chicago Bears fan, I, I enjoy watching the, uh, the Detroit Lions get their occasional win because I like cheering for the underdog. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm sorry. It's true. I hope they win today. I hope they beat the Packers. Um, I think I love the underdog because there are a few things that feel better than, 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 than being in that position where you're up against the wall and, and, and it doesn't seem like, like victory is even a possibility. Defeat seems inevitable. And then somehow, some way, God comes through, the, the, the situation just works out and you end up winning. There, there's, there's victory there. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you look back on this past year, 2019, and you can think about an instance or an occasion where that happened in your life. Maybe you're not quite there. Maybe, maybe you're in a spot right now where it's just, it's just hard. And this past Christmas has been difficult, this year has been difficult, and, and, and you're looking ahead at 2020, and man, you hope that things are gonna be different, you hope that things are gonna change, because, because it's, it's, it's hard. You, you walk into this room today feeling like an underdog, and maybe the situation is daunting and massive, and maybe it's just something small that's been uh, just a pest in your life. I don't know what it is, but, but, but let me encourage you with this. When victory seems impossible, you're in the best place you can be. And listen, that's our big idea uh, this morning. When victory seems impossible, I'm in the best place I, I can be. When, when, when all hope seems lost and when I've got nothing left in the tank, when victory seems impossible, I am in the absolute best place I can be. And now listen, I understand that sounds counterintuitive and that doesn't seem to, to make sense. But listen, the key word here is seems. Seems. When, when, when victory seems impossible, because a lot of things can seem a certain way and not really be what's happening, not really be true. Victory might seem impossible. Defeat might seem inevitable. But listen, in no situation or no circumstances, victory ever impossible, Especially, especially when the Lord is on your side so we're going to look at the story in just a moment, but I want to set us up with a little bit of context as to where we are. We're just kind of jumping right in the middle of this passage in 1 Samuel 13, verse 19. And so just to give a little context as to what's going on in the story, the, the scene, let me set the scene. We're, we're on a battlefield, okay? We're on a battlefield in, in in Israel. And on one side, we've got the Israelites. And early on in this chapter, we, we, we meet our, our King Saul. He's the king of Israel at the time. And he looked like he should have been a king. He, he, he was handsome. He was tall. He was, had this commanding presence, but we see throughout First Samuel that this Saul shouldn't have been king. And early in chapter 13, he brings together 3,000 troops to fight against the Philistines. 2,000 went with him. 1,000 went with his son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, his son, was He was a good guy. He loved the Lord, as we're going to see in just a moment. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And so he took his 1,000 troops and he went and fought this small battle against the Philistines and they won. And there was victory in the camp and the spirits were high and this was an annoyance to the Philistines. And so the Philistines, it actually says in God's word in verse 4, that the Israelites had become a stench to the Philistines. They were this annoyance, this, this pest. And so what did they do? Well, they build up their army and it says that they mustered together 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. And so just, just think about this now. On one side, you've got the Israelites, 3,000 in number, against the Philistines, 36,000. In the situation, massive mit- mismatch. Israel was the underdog. And they knew it too, they, they, they looked out on this massive Philistine army and it was daunting and, and many of the individuals who, who fought in that first battle early in chapter 13, they, they ran away and they hid or they defected and they went to the other side, they traded teams because Israel was such an underdog and in all they were left, Israel was left with 600 men at this point. If I could bring this into, like, modern understanding, this is like when Michigan goes up against Ohio State, okay? It's true, though. You lose eight years in a row, you're the underdog, perpetually. That's what it's like. It's like it's, there's just no chance they can win. No chance. No chance Israel is going to win, right? Well, let's pick up in verse 19 and see how this unfolds. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes or, and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Verse 1, chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Megron. And the people who were with them were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Verse 4. Now, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other, and the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Okay, just to recap kind of where we're at, right? not looking good for Israel, they're the underdog, they're, they're pinned down, they're in a bad position, they're, they're vastly outnumbered, they are the underdog. And again, many of us walk into this room today feeling this way, in some sense or another, and if we don't, that time is coming where we're going to look at the enemy in the face, and we're going to see it, and we're going to think that it is absolutely unconquerable. Maybe something in our marriage, and we just feel like my marriage—it's—it's—it's over. Or my kids—they—they've walked away from the Lord, and they're never coming back. Or my job—I'm never going to find a new one. Or I'm never going to be able to make ends meet. Or it's some addiction, and I've just resigned myself to believing that this defines me now. But remember, when victory seems impossible, I'm in the best place I can be, and and the situation is scary and it was difficult, but even in the scariness, what we see here in this first part of this passage is the setup for for Jonathan and for Israel's success. Even when it doesn't seem likely, we we see how God is already moving and what he can do. And the first thing we see is that that victory is possible even with limited supplies. Victory is possible with, with limited supplies. And so again, not to belabor the point, but at this point, Israel is, is outnumbered 60 to 1. They, they only have 600 men. They're in a poor position. But not only that, did you notice it at the end of chapter 13, verses 19 through 23? Did you see it there? Their are limited supplies. Do you see what the Philistines did to the Israelites at the time? They, 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 they didn't permit any of the Israelites to practice the craft of blacksmithing. They weren't allowed to craft their own metal weapons. The Philistines had a monopoly on the metal market. The Israelites could take their plowshares, their sickles, their axes to the Philistines and sharpen those things, but they couldn't make their own weapons. And and did you see it there? The only two guys who had weapons in all of Israel in verse 22 were Saul and Jonathan. Out of the 600 men remaining fighting against the Philistines, only two had weapons. Their supplies were limited. The situation in Israel was dire, not just because they didn't have a lot of guys on their side, but it was was dire because they were disarmed. You see, the enemy had disarmed Israel at this point. And in order to defeat you, the enemy must first disarm you. In order to defeat you, the enemy must first disarm you. And here's how the enemy does this sometimes. The enemy disarms you when the enemy gets you to believe the lie that you are actually defined by your weaknesses, by your inadequacies, and by your insufficiencies. Yes, we have weaknesses, yes, we have inadequacies, but when the enemy gets us to believe that we are actually defined by these things, we end up in a spot where we can't help but think that victory is is absolutely impossible. But we see throughout God's word, though, this paradox, that even when supplies are limited, even when weakness seems to be the defining trait, God always comes through. Jonathan had this friend named David. Have you ever heard of him? It's kind of a big deal in the Bible. And he kind of has this, this, this story, this, this scene where he goes up against this mighty warrior named Goliath. And, 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 and David had more experience with shepherds than he did with swords. And so he goes to this river and he grabs some stones and his supplies were limited and David... David himself had personal experience knowing that that he wouldn't be limited by his supplies. He's going up against this mighty warrior, this this Goliath, this one defined by his size. And was it enough? Were the supplies that he brought to that battle enough? You think about, about Jesus, and you think about his following. And so many people hungry to, to hear him teach and hungry to watch him perform these miracles, so hungry for it that they actually at, at one point in time had grown literally hungry. And, and, and so Jesus turns to one of his disciples and he says, hey, can you go grab some food for these people? And they're like, it's going to be impossible. And so they muster together some fish and some, some, some loaves of bread, but it just doesn't look like enough. And Jesus looks at it. And was it enough? Was it enough? Yes, it was. With God, it was enough. Why? Because our God, the God of this Bible, the God of of, of this church, the God of our faith, he's all-powerful. The the theological term for this is omnipotence. Our God is all-powerful. And what that means is, is, is God has all the power. There is no power that God doesn't have. He can do whatever he wants. With God, all things are possible. And as we look at the enemy, as we look at the daunting circumstance, we might look at that enemy and they might actually have in their hands the weapon that we think we need, but God's word says that no weapon formed against you shall ever prosper. And in our weakness, in our inadequacies, in our insufficiencies, God's power can more than make up for any of those things because God is all powerful. Listen, if you've placed your faith in this all-powerful God, do you know he's placed inside of you his all-powerful Holy Spirit? Do you know that that, that you are a new creation? You are not defined by your inadequacies, but you are defined by your relationship with Jesus Christ. And and the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells within you. He that is within you is greater than, than he that is in the world. And even When my supplies are limited, victory is still possible because I serve an all-powerful God. Do you believe that to be true? We see as we keep going here that that victory is not only possible with limited supplies, but victory is possible with, with limited support. Victory is possible with limited support. Remember early in chapter 13, Jonathan goes out there, he's got a thousand guys, and he's a boss, and he goes and he fights the Philistines, and he wins this, this battle, and you would think that people are like, yeah, let's go after it, man, we got this Jonathan guy, and, and, and God's with him, and he can do anything, but, but, but what happens? The Philistine army gets together 36,000 guys, the Israelites look at, at it, and their faith falters, and they all fall away, but, but not Jonathan. Jonathan, as it says in that first verse of chapter 14, he gets up and he's like, let's go. Let's do this. And does he rally together the troops? Does he make a big speech? No. It says not even his dad knew. No one in the camp knew except for who? The armor bearer. Jonathan had one guy. One guy. That's all the support that Jonathan had. And, And Looking back on this year, going into this new year, uh, maybe that's where you find yourself. you got limited support. You feel all alone or you feel like you have no one. You had people with you, but but, but they have since abandoned you and they've looked at your situation and they're like, yeah, this person is destined for defeat. And so they've left and they're nowhere to be found. Or even worse, those very same people who were with you, maybe it was because of some decision you made. I don't know that they've turned against you. And they now oppose you, and they're your enemy, and they're your standing all alone with no support. But listen, God sees you, and God knows, and he is with you. His word says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You might feel like you have no one. You might feel all alone. You might feel like you have no support, but your God is with you. Your God is absolutely with you. The theological word for this is, is God's imminence. Not to be confused with his imminence. One spelt I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E, and that means sort of the impending return of Christ. What I'm talking about is the I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, his imminence, which means his nearness, his closeness, his, his absolute near presence. See, at, at church, we talk a lot about his transcendence. If you go to our website, you can see we want to experience the transcendent glory of God. And God's transcendence, it, it describes his otherness. His, his, he's totally majestic and powerful and holy and other. But, but see, that's, that's true about our God. That's amazing but but our God is not just transcendent our, our, our God your God is is, is 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 imminent. He is close by he is present he is near when you feel all alone you feel like no one there is there, there's no one there supporting you and, and it even feels like God is so far off that he doesn't care you that's a lie because your God is near and he's close by and and, and he cares and the reason why this is so important for us to remember is that as we Endure the circumstances, endure the battles, feel like we are this underdog at times. God is with us. Jesus paints this really beautiful picture in Luke 12. And he says this, he says, are not five sparrows? Are not five sparrows sold for just two pennies? And not one of them, not a single one of them is forgotten before God. Why, why even the, the hairs on your head are all numbered, fear not. This is Jesus talking to you. Fear not. You are of more value than, than, than many, many sparrows. You might feel all alone. Maybe, maybe you feel like the people that are with you aren't even that important. You're like, I've got some people with me, but they're not the people I want with me right now. Listen, Jonathan, Jonathan didn't have the important people. On paper, he didn't have the important people. He didn't, he didn't have the army with him. He, he didn't have that, that, that priest. He, he, didn't, he didn't even have his own father. He just had this one armor bearer. Even when my support is limited. Victory is possible because my God is close by. My God is near. Victory is possible with limited support. Victory is possible with limited supplies. Another thing we see here, victory is possible in limiting circumstances. Victory is possible even in limiting circumstances. Uh, Jonathan grabs this armor bearer and the circumstances already seem crazy limiting, right? I mean, like, totally outnumbered, bad position, no weapons, going up up against this army of 30-something thousand men now. But to make matters worse, the author of 1 Samuel in chapter 14, verses 4 through 5, goes to weird, painstaking detail to, to, to describe the passage to get to the Philistines. If you, if you see it there, he, he begins to describe these two, what he calls, rocky crags. And one walk, rocky crag, it, its name was Senna, which, which means the thorny one in Hebrew. And the other one was Bozes, which means the... the The slippery one. And this was the way that led to the Philistine army. It was slippery. It was thorny. It was painful. It was dangerous. There was risk involved. The pathway to get to the Philistines was painful. And I think as we look at the pathway that God would be calling us to right now, the difficult circumstance where we feel outnumbered or we feel like we don't have what it takes we don't feel like we have the people with us that we need as we look toward where we're going, this limiting circumstance. It looks painful, it looks difficult, it looks hard. And I think we can respond typically in one of two ways. One way we respond is we see the difficulty, we see the hardship, we see the pain, and, and we just turn around. We're like, if it's, if it's gonna be that painful, I'm not, I'm not doing it. It, it. God can't want me to go that direction. Or maybe we see the pain and we see the hardship and we see how difficult it's going to be and we do this. We, we pray, we say, God, if you want me to go that direction, then change it. Make it easier. Make it more comfortable. Make it less painful. And what we maybe don't realize what we're doing in that moment is we're hiding behind this superficial spirituality of waiting upon God... To change something when in reality what God is calling us and asking us to do is to just step out by faith into the actual terrible circumstance. You know, I think about this past month and, and how we've been challenged to be generous, not just with our time and our talents, but with our treasure as well. And that's a painful thing to do. It's hard. It's, it's difficult. It can require sacrifice and it can re- require change and I think what's true about it, though, is that God's word's very clear that, 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 that we are to generously give back to what God has so generously given to, to us. And as we pray about it, it's not praying about whether or not I should do it. It's, it's, it's praying about how much. And it's difficult, and it's hard, and it's painful. But listen, we can step out in faith in difficult, limiting circumstances that are painful and dangerous. We've already seen that God is powerful. We've already seen that he's present. But even in these painful, difficult circumstances, we can step out because God is in control. The theological word for that is God's sovereignty, that, that your God is sovereign, that he is in control of every moment of every day. Proverbs uh, sixteen nine says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We might think we're in control. We might think we're in charge. We might think we're pulling the strings and the levers of our lives. But listen, you'd be a fool to think that because God is the one who's ultimately in charge. He's the one crafting the ebb and flow of our lives. In fact, he says of himself, he says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And what looks random and chaotic to you is all within the purview and dominion and control of our sovereign God. And we can rest in that because he promises this, He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, who are called according to his purpose. And I pray, I pray that that verse does not become some sort of trite platitude to us, something we might see on a bumper sticker or or framed in our great aunt's house or something like that. And I pray that if we see it in those places, we would still be encouraged by it because this promise is a sacred blood. Uh, bought promise by Jesus Christ guaranteeing our spiritual well-being even when life is really hard that we would be able to lean into this and rest in this promise that God is working all things together for the good of those that love him even when life gets hard even when circumstances are limiting victory is possible because our God is in control victory is possible um, when we have limited supplies, when we have limited support, when our circumstances are limiting. And listen, this story, it's all about victory and we haven't gotten to the point where they win yet, but I already let the cat out of the bag and spoiled it. I said, this whole story is about the underdog winning. But the story's not necessarily about that that victory, it's about how we got there. And I've been thinking about this victory and it made me think of an even greater victory in an even more unlikely circumstance and situation. A victory fought not by by two guys like Jonathan and his armor bearer, but a victory fought by by one man. A victory that took place not not on a a, a battlefield, but but on a hill. And this man who undertook this battle, if if you looked at him, you wouldn't think anything special about him. He wasn't particularly handsome. He didn't exude amazing amounts of charisma. He He didn't have an amazing education. He wasn't rich. He wasn't wealthy. One might say that this man's supplies were limited. And not only that, as you know, for for a while he had thousands of people following him. He had these devoted followers. But as he ascended that hill for that battle, the crowds faded away. There were no followers to be found. And, And in the midst of the battle, he even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was all alone without the support of even his father. One might say that his support was absolutely 100% limited. And on top of that, the night before he had to go through all of that, he couldn't get any sleep because he knew how painful and terrible it would be. And so instead of sleeping, he cried out and he prayed. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He looked at the pathway. It was going to be painful. It was going to be dangerous. It was going to require sacrifice. And even he asked that it would change. But he knew that if it didn't, he would entrust himself to his sovereign God because he knew he was in control, even in the midst of this limiting circumstance. And as this man was on top of that hill, fighting this battle, drawing in his last breath, If any one of us were there witnessing this scene, I think it would be safe for us to say that in this particular situation, victory was impossible. That victory was impossible. That this was one of those common situations where the underdog actually lost. That nothing short of a miracle, nothing short of divine intervention could produce some sort of comeback. But remember... When victory seems impossible, I'm in the best place I can be. And nothing about the situation was what it seemed. Was there defeat? Yes, momentarily. Did this man die a sinner's death on the cross? Yes, but this man wasn't just any man. This man was Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, the Savior of the world. And while he died that death, three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death and annihilating its stronghold and its curse on each and every one of us forevermore. As his word says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have this victory. He fought for it. He earned it. He gives it freely. Nowhere in human history do we see a more unlikely or greater victory where someone's supplies and support and circumstance, we're so limited, but we see God's power, his presence, his control on full 110% display. Here, this is your God. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? 1 John 5, 4 says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Do you believe that your God is powerful enough? Do you believe that your God is present and with you? Do you believe that your God is in control? Do you believe it? You see, Jonathan, Jonathan believed it. He believed this about God. He believed his God was powerful and in control and present, even when they were so outnumbered, even when they were so outmatched. Look at verse six. Look what he says. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord God from saving by many or by few. Do you see his faith right there, what he says? For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. In essence, what Jonathan is saying here is, it doesn't matter if we've got the greatest weapons or no weapons. It doesn't matter if we have the greatest army or no army at all. It doesn't matter if the way to get there is so easy and simple or so very, very difficult because nothing can stop God from doing what God is going to do. And what's God going to do here? He's going to do what only he can do. Jonathan consults with his armor bearer and he says, hey, we need to listen to God first. And in verses 8 through 10, they they discuss as to how they're going to listen to God to ensure that God is 110% behind what they are doing. And God shows himself and says, I am behind you in verse 11. Look there, verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after them. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within it as it were half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled, the quaked, and it became this very great panic. And so, 36,000 against 3,000 against 600 against two with, with, with one sword or, or one spear, whatever it might have been. But God goes with them. And what does it say in verse 23? What happens? Go all the way down there to verse 23. What does it say? So the Lord saved Israel that day. You see, Saul heard the skirmish and the Israelites went over and they supported them and even those who had defected from the other side, they jumped back with the Israelites. There was great faith. There was great courage on the part of Jonathan and his armor bearer, but make no mistake about it, victory belongs to the Lord. This is on God. The Lord saved Israel that day. This Lord who is powerful, this Lord who is present, this Lord who is in control. He's the one who delivered. Listen, this is God's word. This isn't some fantasy fiction story that we can look to and just read and be like, oh, that's an interesting story. This really happened in space and in time, and I hope that you find this encouraging. I hope that you see this God, this powerful God on display, and it fires up your faith, even if you're going through something really, really difficult. But listen, I know that in just a few moments, all of us are going to be walking out that door, back into that crummy weather, and we're going to get in our cars, and maybe we've got kids, and we've got to put them in the car, and they're going to be kind of annoying, and we're going to turn the radio on to try to drown them out, and We're going to get back into the routine and the mundaneness of life, and we're going to encounter our pain, our struggles, our problems, and we're going to take our eyes off of this awesome God and put them back on our circumstances, and we're going to forget what he can do. Because here's what I want, though. Here's what I so desperately want. I want to see the victory I see in 1 Samuel 14. I want to see that victory in my life. I want to see the victory that Jesus has claimed for me that I see in the scriptures. I want to see that in my life and I hope, I really hope that you want to see that too. And listen though, sometimes victory doesn't always happen the way we want it to, right? We've got an idea about victory and we've got an idea about how things are going to go. about how things should pan out for our marriages, for our kids, for our jobs, for our lives. So often we we, we spend so much energy at the turn of a new year with these resolutions. And we do that because we think if we are this kind of person and we do this sort of thing that it's going to lead to the victory that I really want. But that's not always the case, right? Sometimes the way God works and the way God moves, the victories that he brings aren't necessarily the victories we thought we wanted. And it's hard and it's difficult, but, but here's, here's what else we see in this text. We, we, we see these two individuals. We see on one side, Jonathan. And then on the other side, we haven't talked too much about him. We see his his dad, Saul. And I think what we have here is a perfect picture of two individuals and two completely different responses to circumstances, situations, difficulties to actually being the underdog. And what I want us to do is just as we kind of close here with these last few moments, I want us to see a few things that we could put into place as we head into this new year to set ourselves up to receive whatever the Lord would have for us this coming year. To place us in the pathway of victory, whatever that would mean, as we trust God. And so, the first thing that we see as we look at these two guys is I place myself in the path of victory when I'm in the right position. I place myself on the path to victory when I'm in the right position. You, You think about Jonathan, and you think about his position, he had this position of faith. And his eyes were on the Lord, and he saw this powerful God who was present and in control. And, and he had this crazy idea that, you know what? I'm going to grab my armor bear and I'm going to go up against this army of 36,000 people. I mean, it was practically a suicide mission. But he had this position of, of faith, and then you look at his, his father, you look at Saul, and you look at his position, and he's back at this pomegranate cave, whatever that is, and he's with the priest, and he's with the hundreds of men, and it's this position of, of fear, and he's afraid, and he's self-protective, and he's doing what he thinks is best, and nothing like Jonathan. And So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is where, are, where are my eyes? Where are my eyes, what am I looking at? Am I looking at this God who's all-powerful? Am I looking at this God who, who, who I believe is present and with me? Am I looking at this God who, who I truly believe is sovereign and in control? Or am I looking at myself and what I want and what I need and what I think is going to make me happy and what I think is going to fulfill me? Am my eyes on my circumstances and my difficulties and my hardships? Listen, where your focus is will determine the level of where your faith is. We talked about that all through Hebrews as we studied it in the fall. Where are your eyes? Who are you looking at? Not only that, I place myself on the path to victory when I'm I'm with the right people. When I'm with the right people. Jonathan, he was with the right people. He wasn't with a lot of people. He was with one people, you know? But he was with the right person. His armor bearer. And he wasn't just a servant. Look at verse 7. Look at his response to Jonathan's crazy idea. He says, and his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. He was just as crazy as Jonathan. These are the kind of friends we need. That when we're going after the Lord and and the Lord is asking us to do something outrageous or something risky or something painful, that we would have friends that are with us and they're like, you know, I'm with you. If that's what the Lord's calling you to do, then I'm with you. Heart and soul, and I will support you, and I will love you, and I will pray for you, and I will walk with you through the painful path to get there. Saul, he was surrounded by a lot of people, probably a lot of really, really important people. He was surrounded by that that priest. He had a priest with him. That's a good person to have around, right? The thing about this priest, though, we don't have time to dig into this priest, his 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 family heritage, his line, it was this defunct and sort of disgraced priestly line. You see, Saul was, was around people who had the appearance of godliness, but they weren't truly godly. And maybe you have those people around your life. So we have to ask ourselves is who are we surrounding ourselves with? Are we surrounding ourselves with people who, as we hunger and thirst for the Lord, they hunger and thirst with us? Or it just looks like they do. I'm not even talking about people who are distracting us away to worldly pursuits. I'm talking about people who look the part, but they're just playing the part. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are we surrounding ourselves with? I I place myself on on the path to victory when I when I surround myself with the right people. And not only that, this last thing we see. I place myself on the path to victory when I take the right posture. I take the right posture. You see, Jonathan had this posture of humility. Humility and trust and dependence on the Lord. You know, he didn't read it, but in verses 8 through 10, Jonathan's fierce and he's ferocious and he wants to go after it, but, but, but he yields himself over to, to, to God's direction in verses 8 through 10. And he's like, if, if the Lord does this, then we'll move this way. He's, he's, he's listening to God. His posture is humility. And also in the text, when, when, when he sees that the Philistines are, are ready to battle, you can see it. He, it says he climbs up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer does the same. That's a position of a dog. It's a humiliating position. Jonathan was a humble guy, humbly listening to the Lord, but Saul? Saul wasn't listening to God. Like I said, he had that priest friend who, who had the appearances of godliness but wasn't really godly, and he had on him, we saw what was called the ephod. And in the ephod contained what was known as the umim and the thummim, which are all very weird words. I get that. But back then, they would use those things to divine the will of God, to listen to the will of God, and never once are those things ever consulted by Saul because Saul had a position of pride, and he was only listening to his own heart and his own mind and his own desires, and only when he felt ready, he went over to the battle. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, who am I listening to? Am I listening to the Lord? And not just not just when things get hard, not just when things get difficult and I reach out to God as sort of this lifeline, phone a friend, but am I daily leaning in and listening to what he would have for me even when life is good so that when life does get bad it's become a habit, it's become a discipline, it's become who I am. Or am I listening to myself, my own desires, my own wants, those who feed my flesh? Who am I listening to? Listen, um, this is the last weekend of church this year, end of 2019. Maybe you look back on this year, and this year was like total garbage, and you're just ready. You're like, oh, I just need the new year. I don't even care if it doesn't really mean anything. I'm ready for 2020, and it's not just the end of the year. It's the end of a decade. Maybe the last decade was, was just awful, and you're ready for just a fresh start, a clean slate. listen, I think a lot of us can get entrapped in this idea of like being resolved to do things and going after resolutions and becoming this better person. Would we all be resolved to do this one thing, to fix our eyes on the Lord and trust him? In the midst of whatever we're going through, would our eyes be on a God who is all powerful, who is in control, and who is so near and tender and kind and loving? He's already earned the victory for us. Would we just receive that? receive our identity in Christ, trust him, even if our circumstances are limiting, even if our supplies are limited, even if our support is limited, would we just fix our eyes on him this year and trust him and believe in his goodness? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so clear and, and God, oftentimes so, so very interesting and But we see this story and this example of of really audacious faith. God, we pray that you would would fuel our faith, that you would fire up our faith. That that our eyes would be fixed on on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, we strive so hard. We work so hard to earn others' affection, to earn prestige and notability in this world. And you say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. God, will we not burden ourselves with more lists of, of what to do, but, but will we rest in your victory, what you have earned for us? Would from the overflow of our hearts come worship and praise and, and really self-forgetfulness this year? as we look to you and, and love you and entrust you with whatever's going on. God, I know a lot of us want to see you move in really powerful ways this year. And, but for many of us, the, the, the victory that, that we yearn for, we may, we may never see until we see you face to face. But regardless, we trust that you are working all things together for the good of those that love you, who are called according to your purpose. And We thank you. God, that in your grace and mercy you have reached out to us, that you have saved us. Be with us. Help us to see you more clearly this new year, God. We pray this in your son's name.